Money FM 89.3, the best of Saturday mornings. Wide World on Money FM 89.3. And yes, indeed, joining us in the studio now is PhD Olaf J. Grot, the founder and CEO of Cambridge, Cumbrian, sorry, Futures and Cambrian Designs. He's going to talk about the importance of the cognitive economy and what it means for us in Singapore and for business leaders around the world. He's also got a new book coming out called The Great Remobilization, Strategies and Designs for a Smarter Global Future. Olaf, that might be the longest biography I've ever read. Welcome to the studio, sir. It's so good to be with you, Neil and Hung. Uh, thank you for having me. You're already a hoot. This is a party. Oh, thank you very much. You're very, very kind. And for the benefit of our listeners, I must say he has a very busy schedule. He flies all over the ro- world. He did a big conference yesterday, I believe. Yeah, we, well, we had, a, we, had a, we had a course here, an executive course right. on doing business in, uh, in Asia. Yeah. So he kindly found time to join us this morning. Now, Olaf's expertise, as I understand it, tell me if I'm wrong, is the cognitive economy. Let's start with that. What is it? What is the cognitive economy? Let's start with that. It's a great question. It's a fancy term that essentially means that people are now innovators around the world and primarily in Silicon Valley and Shenzhen and other locations in China and across Asia, in fact, are now layering cybernetics functions, that's command and control functions, right, that are digital functions into the economy across all layers. That's not just the digital realm, that's your physical life, that's biology, that's ecology, across everything. And they're using AI and data science to control what is happening out there in terms of information flow and decision making. So it's a big deal if you're concerned with, uh, you know, understanding how to uh, make sure that your business works well. So this has repercussions for globalization 2.0, emerging economies in this part of the world, developing economies, China and so on. Maybe for our listeners, give us a a real world example, hopefully a fairly simple example of what that might look like, how the cognitive economy would actually work with a real life example. Right. So take uh, take a global food conglomerate, for instance, uh, of which uh, at least one, if not more, are headquartered right here in Singapore, right? So we're used to having supply chains uh, that start really in the south, in the global south, uh, and then making sure that those, uh, you know, those raw materials and natural, uh, you know, natural materials get, you know, fabricated, get curated, get manufactured, um, get distributed in the global north. Now, that whole supply chain will have to be rejiggered because climate change is coming, more trade boycotts are coming, more global fragmentation geopolitics is coming, and that's really only one issue with it. We have now engineered these supply chains so tightly that it's very easy to break them. So we have to make them smarter and more robust and more resilient as we as we look toward the future, and that's something that needs to start right now because uh, you know some big disruptions are coming. So, if you're talking about cognitive uh, economy, how can that we how can we apply that right now? Like, what sectors need cognitive economy? As a yeah, thing? so the first thing you have to do, and it's 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 fairly easy to say this, but it's hard hard to do. Is you got to get smart on AI and on data mm-hmm. science. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, you have to also take a look at not just automation uh, of the body and the brain, but also you know things like brain computer interfaces. So. You know, how do you understand people's decision-making better? 
uh, how do people interact with their productive environment, you know, future of work comes to mind, uh, but also with each other and with, with their environment as they walk through their days. So brain-computer interfaces is not science fiction. It's here. Innovators mm-hmm. are working on those now. We have maybe another five years to commercial scale out, and that's something that will impact the world of work, productivity, mm-hmm. and finance as well. I mean, I'm familiar with the term, but just give us an example of how that would work. What is a brain-computer interface, and how is it going to change the workplace? Yeah, so you know, famous examples are, of course, you know, Elon Musk and Neuralink, uh, but there's also Brian Johnson and his company, Colonel. Uh, in fact, a friend of mine, he is designing non-invasive helmets that allow you, allow everybody really to understand how the brain works and then, you know, see the connections as to what's firing at what inside your brain, how do you make decisions, what's working, what's not working so well. That has tremendous implications for health, of course, paraplegia, Alzheimer's, you know, some types of blindness, etc., but also for the future of work because you can now understand how people are. You will be able to understand how people are working, what stimulates them, what makes them productive, right? And then, you know, his vision is to automate some of those good functions and mitigate some of the stuff we don't do so well, right? Mm. Like getting distracted, uh, getting, you know, getting tired, making wrong decisions, right? Yeah. I mean, just listening to you, it does have a kind of Huxleyan Brave New World element to it where I only based on what you're telling me, is there a, a scary element to this that it's going to regiment productivity? We're going to know what an individual is capable of to the second. And if they fall below those productivity uh, levels, are there consequences? That's point one. And I suppose the second point would be it's going to automate a lot of jobs and therefore lots of job losses. Would that be fair? Well, we're going to have to see about the job losses, but are mm-hmm. there are there scary horizons? Of course, right? So you mm-hmm. imagine, right, we've got 100 billion neurons in the brain. We're figuring out how those are firing, how to manipulate them, but then we're also drawing stuff out of that brain, drawing insights out, and we're connecting those insights to what we have today, 300 trillion 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 IP addresses in this world, wow. right? That's the capacity of IPv6. So when that happens, somebody better, you know, screen that, figure out how it's privacy assured and agency and dignity assured, right? So that's the that's the scary stuff. We need to understand it, of course, and engage it in order to eventually regulate it and shape it. The future of work, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. There's a lot of scary statistics out there, you know, mm-hmm. 40% of all jobs going away by whatever, 2050, uh, because of AI and other technologies like this one. But that's overhyped. We think there is going to be an issue, but uh, we're going to be seeing something on the order of maybe um, 40%, 30 to 40% task displacement within 60% of all job categories. That's still massive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 50 million people needing upskilling and training. We don't have the institutions for that. I mean, I feel like I'm listening to an episode of Black Mirror right now. <laughs> yeah, from a Netflix. little bit like that. Um, <laughs> but you talked a lot about AI here. I mean, but would AI do more harm than good? I mean, how can we manage the use of AI? I mean, the hype about, around AI is coming into you know headlines right now, and it's like this whole big tech race to towards AI. But how can we? Ma- I, I feel like there's no true restrictions from governments? Like, what can we expect? Yeah. Look, I mean, I I think AI has tremendous potential, not just in productivity, uh, certainly in Mm -hmm. finance, but really for all of our lives, making our lives richer and better, doing the stuff that we don't want to keep doing, right? And making better and and, and smarter and faster decisions. But there is that other side that we need to get a hold of. Mm -hmm. And that is essentially where this uh, proposed moratorium came from, right? We got to slow things down because we're seeing what's happening now with some of these large language models and how disruptive that can be, providing wrong insights, wrong information, making stuff up, 
infringing on people's intellectual property rights and things of that nature. So we've got to get ahead of that thing. And the European Union has started with the EU AI Act. Mm-hmm. Many innovators are saying it's not really a great piece of legislation. You know, as typical with the Europeans, they they go regulation first, regulation fast, and uh, and now we're going to have to sort out what it means and how to mm. improve it. You've talked a lot about the cognitive economy. Let's move it towards this part of the world slightly, globalization 2.0. How do you see the economy, the cognitive economy affecting China? And this ties in with a question we've just had from one of our listeners who says, Olaf, how does the cognitive economy differ in Asia China predominantly, from, say, North America and other parts of the world. I believe that question is from a Mr. Van Zutphen. Are you Glenn Van Zutphen? I'm not quite sure. I'm not familiar with the name. But, yes, how does the cognitive economy differ in Asia from, say, North America and elsewhere? Yeah. Hey, Glenn, good to hear from you. So so, uh, China will be co-leading the cognitive economy. China Mm. has massive amounts of, obviously, people, albeit shrinking, Mm -hmm. right? Population pyramid is upside down, but uh, massive amounts of data, and that helps with artificial intelligence. So uh, the United States is getting used to the fact that China will be co-leading on AI and therefore in the cognitive economy. But the model by which you then run that AI and use it and apply it is, of course, very different from from Northern America, right, which is based on democratic systems that, by and large, let business do as it pleases until harm can be proven and then regulation sets in. Very different in China, I think. Yeah. Uh, definitely more state control, as we can all guess, uh, but then also more proactive curbing of potential abuses because China is all about stability, of course, for various reasons. Now, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening also in Southeast Asia, including here in Singapore and Vietnam and in other places, pockets of expertise of AI. And I think, you know, local regulators, local policymakers, entrepreneurs, venture capitalists need to make more local AI happen because you don't want to be dominated by other countries' AI systems. Mm. Well, that ties in with a second question that Glenn Van Zutphen <laughs> has, has sent in. You know, we saw post-COVID a decentralization of, of so many industries. We saw the disruption of supply chains, food chains being the most obvious one. How is that going to impact, or let's look at the other way, how will the cognitive economy impact that? Will, will there be a, a decentralized element to it? As you mentioned there, will individual territories focus on their own AI, their own developments? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? How do you see it? Yeah, so so let me give you the example of a of a very senior executive from a chemicals company in Europe, who uh, who I met at the recent annual meeting of the new champions in Tianjin, the Davos Summer Davos essentially, and he said to me, "Look, we understand we have to decentralize. We have to go to uh, you know other parts of Asia and counterbalance our investments in China, but it's not trivial because the board was so used to right the people that that hold the purse strings eventually was so used to." you know, 20, 30 years of mega factories in China, you know, driving into efficiencies really hard. Now they're being told to go micro factories around various countries in Asia that are less developed, have their own political risks and economic risks. And so so that decentralization of value chains and supply chains, that's going to be really hard. Mm -hmm. But it can be done. And even this executive said, we know we have to do it. But it is a complete rethink. It's a complete culture change. And it will take capital. It will take capital to make that happen. Now, there's another... Uh, part of decentralization, and that is going from what's called Web 2 to Web 3. Web mm-hmm. 2 is essentially these big platforms, right? In China, uh, the Give Baidu. us an example. Yeah, in China, the Baidus, the Alibabas, uh, right. uh, 10 cents of this world. In the United States, you've got Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, and others, right? So there's maybe a dozen of them out there. That's called Web 2, and they're essentially 
global oligarchs of of information and of data, right? right. Um, that's now which couldn't a, be more centralized between Elon Musk currently and Zuckerberg and so on. Correct. Right? So yeah. the trend, actually, if you leave the economics uh, to economics, the trend may actually be toward more centralization. But there's a whole no slew of innovators now that are saying we got to go back to the original version of the internet, which is distributed. That's where blockchain also came from, right? So mm-hmm. Web Web three is what it's called. And right now we're seeing a struggle to counterbalance the old, you know, information oligarchy, as it were, with the new uh, Web three solutions. And a lot of that stuff is overhyped, but there are foundations that are being laid now mm-hmm. uh, that will stay. So I would not discount it just because we see crypto blowing out uh, here and there. That's fascinating. They're really fascinating. <laughs> We're talking with Olaf J. Grot. Did I get it right? Yeah, perfect. Thank you. <laughs> uh, the founder and CEO of Cambrian. I think I got that wrong. Cambrian? Cumbrian? Cambrian. No, that's good. Okay, that's Futures good. and Cambrian Designs. He's got a new book coming out shortly, The Great Remobilization, Strategies and Designs for a Smarter Global Future. Let's stay with what you were talking about, crypto. Has it had its boom and bust where do you see crypto? This will have our listeners' ears perked up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I imagine. Where does crypto go from here in this new age that you mentioned, Web uh, 3.0 and so on? Yeah, look, I mean, I think uh, clearly Bitcoin is overhyped and, and, and I think it's overinflated. And we have seen it's nothing like gold, right? So, mm. uh, so, so that, that one's clear. But there are other very promising uh, paths to take, and that's Ethereum frankly, right? That's, to me, is the much more interesting way to go. Ethereum is also a lot more energy uh, efficient than Bitcoin, right? Because it is, uh, it's, it's proof of stake, not, not work. And so a lot less server power used for people to do work on Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so there are very promising strands, and we are seeing, you know, Web3-type blockchain technologies permeating every aspect of society and the economy now. Many of them are still very small, but uh, but with a lot of promise in, in many areas like, for instance, real estate, you know, social impact investing, uh, even peer-to-peer loans, uh, and then, of course, smart contracts of all sorts, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll have to see how much of that stays in the public's hand versus large organizations. There'll be a struggle, and uh, and that's not a bad thing. Right. And finally, I suppose, what does this all mean, what we've discussed today? What advice would you give to Singaporean businesses or Singaporean business leaders who may be listening to this? What should they be thinking about? and preparing for moving yeah. forward. You have to look at your portfolios uh, in, in very quickly because this thing is coming hard and fast. Uh, regulators are not going to be able to completely shut this down or slow this down. So I would take a look at my portfolio, whether that is a financial investment portfolio, if you're a banker or an investor in, of some sort, or if you're an operator, your portfolio of business units, products, programs, and make sure that you have enough stuff in there that addresses this cognitive economy thing. It comes with new dynamics around the world, um, and the portfolios will either do badly or well, depending on how they're configured. So it's all about portfolios, right? Fragility, you know, counteracting fragility and increasing ROI has to do with how your portfolio is configured. And that's a strategy question. Mm, Fascinating. And finally, tell us a bit about your book. Yeah, the book uh, co-authored with Mark Esposito and Terrence Say here and, and, and help from uh, your friend uh, Dan Zare there. Uh, Dan Zare is, is our, our collaboration partner on this, former journalist. So the, the four of us got together and said, look, we're seeing that the global economy is changing. There's a lot of fragmentation. Uh, there's a lot of unhelpful dynamics in the economy. 
people are talking about deglobalization even, which we don't think is happening, but clearly fragmentation. So we said, let's address that. Let's take a look at it. What are the, what are the pillars of it? And then what do we do about it? Because we're leaders, right? We're not just sort of ivory tower academics who sit on the sidelines just studying this stuff. We can't sit on the couch. We have to do something. So what is that something? So that's where new designs and new strategies came in, and we crafted um, a whole lot of them uh, on the back end of this book. So in the book, we're, we're, we're unpacking these pillars, and there's five of them, right? So cognitive technologies we talked about, crypto we talked about, there's cybersecurity, there's climate, and there's China, right? Climate is uh, existential. China, you can't do without in the global economy anymore. So, so all of those are colliding, right, mm-hmm. to shape this new future. And so we then chart a, uh, a scenario out to 2035, and we tell people what, what an alternative future could look like. You know, a lot of people are assuming a lot of things about the U.S. and about China that may not hold true. So the book will tell you an alternative that we think is actually highly probable. Fascinating. And if anyone wants to contact you, where should they go? Absolutely. Contact me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, you'll find me there easily. You know, email is also always a, a good idea. G-R-O-T-H for Grote at Cambrian.ai. Genuinely fascinating. Olaf J. Grote, the founder and CEO of Cambrian Futures and Cambrian Designs and the author of the new book, The Great Remobilization, Strategies and Designs for a Smarter global future. It's been a genuinely fascinating discussion. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It was great. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.